I think we just had our sermon. Amen. How cool is it to see? Uh, it wasn't her changing her life. It, it was Jesus changing her life. Everything was about Jesus. Um, how awesome is it uh, to be a part of a family where, where Jesus is changing people like Christian, people hopefully like you and me. Uh, good morning, Kettlebrook family. My name's Ryan. If we don't know each other, I'm one of the pastors here. I spend a lot of time down in Jackson, but I'm really excited to be up with you to continue on our series, week four of five in a series we're calling Compelling Christianity, where we're trying to recast vision for what this word and term and way of life called Christian means. And were there ever a time where our communal life as Jesus's followers needed to be compelling? It's now. Have you noticed that in a sense in society we're just a tad bit polarized? We uh, are either black or we're white. We are heterosexual or we're LGBT. We're Democrat or Republican, left wing, right wing or no wing. That was my attempt to bring some levity to this. You're college educated or not. You're rich or you're poor. You kneel for the anthem. You stand. I mean, for sure in my life, for probably in our life, I can't remember a time where there been, we as a people have been more polarized than right now. And in this current cultural climate, you have this group that is called and that names the name Christians, which depending upon who you talk to would be viewed very, very differently. Some would see Christians as crusading conquerors, others as liberators. Some with those who upheld slavery, some as those who sought to abolish it. Some would associate Christians with right-wing Republicans who are narrow-minded, bigoted, and don't care about people. Others would associate Christians with liberal Democrats who are socialists. Some would associate Christians with abuses in the church. Some would associate Christians with those who are seeking to do good in the world. Some would think about people whose kind of cars are gone maybe some days of the week. Some would think about, no, they want to bring Jesus into the everyday. And just like our current social climate is polarized... This term Christian and people's understanding of who those people are is very polarized too because the term Christian has come to mean so many different things to so many different people. But family, all too often, for all too many people, it's come to mean something like this quote from Gandhi. I like your Christ. I don't like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ." At which point I have to say guilty. Family, all too often, the term Christian is associated with someone who's either narrow-minded, judgmental, self-righteous, bigoted at the worst, or at the least, whose leader doesn't seem to change their everyday life that much. So what we're seeking to do is over the course of five, week, five weeks to recast vision for what it could look like to be Together, a compelling Christian community that points people back to our leader. And we're using the book of Titus to do that. So the question we want to talk about, and I want to answer this morning, is how can we have a compelling communal life as followers of Jesus? How can we have a compelling communal life as followers of Jesus? And to do that, go ahead and turn with me in either on your app or in your Bibles to Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2. The page number is on the screen. And as you're getting there, I'm going to talk about the structure of Titus chapter 2 a little bit. We are going to see in verse 11 what has happened to us as Jesus' followers. 
we are going to see in verses 13 and 14 what will happen to us as Jesus' followers. And then once we get to verse 12, we're going to see what's meant to happen to us here and now because of what Jesus has done in and through our lives. We're going to start in Titus chapter 2 and we're going to read verses 11 through 14. Titus 2, 11 through 14. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. And and we're going to talk about this next week as we close out the series a lot. But look at verse 11. It talks about the grace of God that brings salvation. The grace of God that brings salvation. It's appeared to all men. And there's two big points, I think, in this one verse, verse 11. It's God's grace and salvation. But this verse is not talking about a what. It's talking about a who. It's talking about about Jesus. I want to read a story. I'm going to read two stories out of a book called Speaking of Jesus this morning. The author says, I've been reading Don Miller's Searching for God Knows What. Miller took this point to an even further extreme. In his book, he tells a story about one occasion when he was speaking to a class at a Christian college and he stood in front of the group and announced he was going to share the gospel with them with one difference. He was going to leave out one critical element. He warned them in advance that it was a major part and he would require them to tell him what it was afterward. He went on to describe the rampant sin that plagued our culture. So people would think homosexuality and abortion, drug use, song lyrics on the radio, newspaper headlines, and so on. He said that according to scripture, the wages of sin is death. And he talked about the way sin separates us all from God. He went on to describe the beauty of morality and he told stories citing examples of how righteous living was better. He spoke of the greatness of heaven, and he described it complete with a landscape of spectacular beauty. He talked about teen pregnancy, sexually transmitted diseases, and all the supporting statistics. Finally, he shared the caveat, repentance, how it would make life purposeful and pure and full of meaning, going into detail about what it would they would be saved from if they would only repent, and how their lives could be God-honoring and God-centered. Describing what happened when he finished the lecture, Miller writes, I rested my case and asked the class if they could tell me what I had left out of this gospel presentation. He waited for several awkward minutes. Picture yourself. Picture me not talking for several minutes. I have, hard, I have a hard time playing the 18-second rule in groups I'm in, right? Just up here, three minutes, not saying anything. Not a single hand raised. No one could identify the missing component of the gospel. As far as the students could tell, Miller had been complete. Closing his case, Miller writes, I presented a gospel to Christian Bible students and left out Jesus. Nobody noticed. Even when I asked them to think very hard about what it was, even when I stood there for several minutes in silence, Miller concludes, to a culture that believes that they go to heaven based on whether or not they're morally pure, or whether they understand some theological ideas, or that they are very spiritual, Jesus is completely unnecessary. At best, he's an afterthought, a technicality by which we become morally pure, or a subject of which we know we're a founding father of our woo-woo spirituality. Yeah, it says woo-woo. I think that way often, more than I'd like to admit. 
Too often I try to win allies to my point of view rather than to point them to Jesus. I remember having lots of arguments with people of different perspectives. I exercised my tongue and my brain a lot in those situations. I fervently and I hope intelligently refuted arguments. I showed my mettle. I proved myself. I proved that it was more important to me to win an argument than to be like Jesus. Compassionate and loving, kind and patient. And family, why do I share that story? I share the story because in order to live a compelling communal life as followers of Jesus, we have to be about and speak about and live out lives that reflect Jesus and the truths about who he is and what he's done. Not with the machine gun, you know, give him Jesus like this, but not even only by what we say, though we have to share the truths about Jesus, but it has to be a sharing and a showing of the person of Jesus to people. It has to be a sharing and a showing. Because if it doesn't, verse 11 could look like this in people's minds, rather than what it says. For the grace of God that brings morality has appeared to all men. For the grace of God that brings better values has appeared to all men. For the grace of God that makes us better than them has appeared to all men. For the grace of God that brings self-righteousness has appeared to all men. And if this, though, is what people feel when they engage with us, when they're friends with us, when they interact with us. We don't have any influence. We don't have any authority because that's all about us. We need the person and work of Jesus. Because family, if we're deeply convicted that the only way we live a compelling communal life is through Jesus, what that means is in the same way that the grace of God appeared to us bringing salvation... Grace means we don't deserve it. We're giving something we don't deserve in Jesus. Then in the same way that God's grace has appeared to us and worked in us, you know what it's meant to do? It's supposed to then flow through us too. God's grace appeared to us, bringing salvation through the personal work of Jesus Christ when we place our faith, and then it's supposed to flow through us. And and here's the deal. The scriptures talk about that every single one of us and every single person in the history of humanity and will continue has been created in the image of God. They were created to enjoy right relationship with God. And Adam and Eve actually experienced this until they believed the lie that they needed to be more like God forgetting they were already made in his image. And then what they did was they experienced the consequences of stepping outside of his loving care and his loving leadership. Their sin, it ushered in death and pain and and sadness and and sickness where previously there had been none. And we've heard about the, the generation labeled the me generation. I don't think that's a generation. I think that's me and you and everybody since that time where we have this innate propensity then towards ourselves. And towards living for us rather than living for God and living for others. And ever since Adam and Eve, see, relationships don't work the way they were intended to. Families don't work the way they were intended to. Our bodies don't work as they were intended to. And it even affected our relationship with God. Where now spiritual death was part of the equation and physical death was part of the equation. And yet, verse 11, yet... God the Father, because He's rich in grace, He gives you and He gives me and He offers humanity something that they don't deserve. 
something that I don't deserve, Jesus. He sends the perfect one into an imperfect world so that you and me and others can experience his grace and be offered a way out of the mess we've made of our own lives through living for self and living for sin. And then what's supposed to happen in compelling Christianity is that that same thing that's happened to us is supposed to express itself individually and communally towards others. We've been given grace, so we're to give grace also. Right? This is God's intention. This is His original intention in creation. Yet see if you can identify with anything I'm about to say. And I want you to, like, we've got to go here. Because if we can't talk about this as family, I don't know where we talk about this. But just listen. Here's what I think too often help, happens in society. Notice I say in society. Some might think all lives matter. Give me a break. Can't people see the systemic injustices that exist in our society? And then thus, we label the other side an enemy who we refuse to give grace to. Some might think black lives matter. Come on, all lives matter. I'm tired of hearing about how only black lives matter. And again, refuse to give grace. Some might think Republicans, they're, they're rich, they're spoiled, they're unaware, uncaring, bigoted, male chauvinists wrapped up in religion. And we refuse to give grace. Some might think Democrats, they're just seeking to help the poor. They're socialists who lack morality. They want to bail people out from personal and social responsibility. Refuse to give grace. Some might think the LGBT community, they're immoral, they're angry, they've got a political agenda. Refuse to give grace. Some might think heterosexuals, they're homophobic, they're judgmental, they're uneducated, they're unloving. Refuse to give grace. You don't have to raise your hands, but I'm assuming that you can identify with something I said. This is what we're doing in society, whether it be on Facebook, whether it be on CNN, whether it be in dialogues we have. This is what we're doing. We're we're labeling people enemies, and then we're refusing to give them the grace that we've received in the personal work of Jesus. And family, I can understand how this happens in popular society. There's no motivation of of living like Jesus, right? But what's sad is that I, I can find it too easy in my heart, and I think we can find it too easy in our hearts to not be that different in some of this than society. But we have Jesus. We've been given grace so that we can be grace givers. We've been given grace so that we can be grace givers. And we've gotten to the point in society, even as followers of Jesus, where we can't even agree to disagree and yet still give the other person, the other side, the grace we've been given by God the Father. And I don't think any of us would think that's right. Right? We want, to, we want to give the grace we've been given by Jesus. It, it's funny. You know, if you were to look at the New Testament, and specifically the Gospels that look at the life of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you know the people who he's continually kind of harshest on? It's the religious leaders. It's the religious leaders who he's harshest on because he's like, your, your lips say one thing and your heart shows that your lives don't really believe it. Your lives don't match your lips. Verse 11 talks about what's happened to us as Jesus' followers. God's grace has appeared to us in the person of Jesus and our faith in us. In Excuse me, let me say that again. Not our faith in us. Our faith in Jesus has saved us so that we might show and tell God's grace and show that it's available to all. Go down to verse 13 with me. Verse 13. 
11, what has happened to us. Verses 13 to 14, what will happen. It talks about the fact that Christ followers will spend eternity with Jesus. Again, through God's grace offered to us, not through what we can do on our, on our own. And so now we wait expectantly in between the time when Christ became man, which we'll celebrate here during the month of December, and the time when Christ will return again. And those of us who are His followers will live with Him forever. He gave His life for us to redeem us from all the wrong that we have done to make a people who will live out His goodness and grace. That's what verse 12 talks about. Right? It, it, it talks about in 13 and 14, He's going to return. And until then, we live out verse 12 that we would seek to be a purified people, a people eager to do what is good. That we would seek to not live worldly lives, it says, but self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. Lives that mirror the character of our King, the character of our leader, Jesus and there are places, if you want to reference Galatians 5, it talks about what it looks like to live a godly life versus what it looks like to live a life that's just all about Ryan or, or all about, you know, yourself. But rather than sharing some verses, I want to speak to another story that I think hits at the heart of the matter. One day I saw my Muslim Arab friend sweating as he was talking with my other friend, a fine conservative-minded evangelical Christian. It looked like the two had locked horns in a battle to the death. It happened here in Colorado this past summer. We hosted a gathering of some of our longtime friends from the Middle East and brought in a bunch of American Christian friends to talk about God, the Middle East, and how to bring hope to Muslim countries. There were about 45 of us together for three days. We were having a great time until I looked over and saw these two all tangled up. The next thing I knew, my Muslim friend, not yet a follower of Jesus, had got out on the deck and was smoking a cigarette life. His life depended on how fast he could suck it down. I walked out and nonchalantly said, What's up, bro? His response, Why the Ali, do these people want to convert me? Why can't they just leave me alone? I know that you don't want to convert me. Right? Talk about a loaded question full of semantic nuance. Here's my answer and what happened. I asked him what he thought my other friend wanted to convert him to. He said he wants me to be a Christian, but I'm a Muslim. Well, I asked him what he thought this friend meant by becoming a Christian. He wants me to stop living in the Middle East and loving my family. I told him I was pretty sure that's not what this friend meant. But if that's what conversion to Christianity is, then I agreed he shouldn't convert. See? He said, man, I knew you weren't into conversion. No, I'm not, I said. Not like that. Not at all. I think you should stay in your country, love your family, and be who God has made you to be. Then I asked him this. What do you think God thinks when he looks down at all 6.5 billion people on earth? He thinks they're all screwed up, he said. Yep, that's what I think God thinks too. So what do you think God would like to do with all these messed up people? Muslims, Christians, Jews, Hindus, nothings, everyone. Well, he had never thought about that before. He wasn't sure. But he did say God would probably want to help them not be so screwed up. Well, I agreed. So you might say that God would like to... What's the word? Convert... All 6.5 billion people on earth. Not to a religion, but to himself. He'd like everyone to be like him. To be converted into him. But how would he do that? He'd need a converter. I went on to tell my friend that if he bought an appliance here in the States and took it back to the Middle East, he'd need something to change the current from 110 to 220 volts. What's that called, I asked him. A transformer or a converter, he said. That's right. So what is God's transformer to get us all the, back to the way God wants us to be, to change us, to convert her? He gasped, literally, and said, it's Jesus. 
It's Jesus. I never thought about that, but it's Jesus. He's the converter. And he got so excited, he called his wife out and he told her the whole conversation. She started to cry. We sat on the deck and prayed that God's converter or transformer would change us into the current that can be connected to God and he would do this with all of our friends. It was a profound moment, amazing that just a half hour earlier, he was about to bite this other guy's head off for trying to convert him and now he sat with me in tears praying. The power of words. I share this story because I wonder how many people feel this way about Christians. They've got this distorted view of what it is that we seek to do. The same way that this Muslim man felt. They want to convert me, but conversion meaning maybe to a set of rules, maybe do's and don'ts, maybe to a set of uh, traditions, maybe to a subculture that they view as unloving, uncaring, and lacking in grace and compassion. See, Titus here, he calls us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. This is what a compelling communal example in life as Jesus' followers looks like. But what too often happens in society is, is what we're going to see on this next slide. Here's what often, too often ends up in society and, and, and us as Christ followers. This is an image of the 8-minute Titus video we showed at the beginning of this series. And at the end, it talks about Paul's missionary strategy. The church should be agents of transformation, not through culture wars, one side, not through assimilation, another side, but in the middle, a third way, through wise participation in culture. Through wise participation in culture. And too often, we see one of the two displayed, I see it in my life or we see it in our life, that we either wage a culture war or we either assimilate into culture and don't question anything. Kind of just go with the flow, either actively or passively. I want to talk about uh, one more story, an experience I had before I was a part of Kettlebrook to illustrate this point. Before 2009, when I came on the the team of Kettlebrook, I, I attempted, we attempted, my wife and I in a group, to plant a church in inner city Milwaukee. The goal was to be multi-ethnic, multi-economic in one um, church, one local church. And through that time, when we were starting out and starting to meet, and we only met in a home at this time, we didn't yet have a public gathering like this, I met a woman who I'm going to call Debbie. Okay, and Debbie called me on the phone and had heard about us. She probably found us on her website, something like that. She wanted to come check it out. So I invited her to come check it out, invited her to come to our gathering. Uh, At that point, we met in a home, and it was one of those Milwaukee homes, so there was a bunch of steps leading up to get to the home. And so when I met Debbie, she was older than me, and so she needed a walker to get around. So we helped her get up, helped her get her walker in the home. And then as I was seated on the couch or wherever I was sitting, I noticed as she was rolling by me with the walker that there was this, like, image on the front of her walker. I'm like, what is that? You know, and as she came closer, it became more clear. It was like a, I don't know if it was 11 by 14, it was big. All I know is it was big, it was clear of an aborted baby. Right on the front of her walker. Now... Why did she do that? Well, she probably cared about life, right? And she was probably trying to let others know that she was against abortion to anyone who would walk by her and her walker. I knew, though, 
that if, if Debbie felt that strongly about this issue that she was willing to put it on her walker, that she probably felt pretty strongly about a whole bunch of other issues. So we sat down and talked to Debbie, and it became apparent that through talking with her that our church was probably not the right fit for her. Why? Was it because I disagreed with her end assertion that God values life? It wasn't. It was that I disagreed that the best way to promote life was to wage a culture war. I mean, think about that. The more I go, the less I want to debate and the more I want to dialogue. Because in dialogue, I can learn a person's story. I can learn their hurts. I can learn what they've been through. I can identify with them and seek to put myself in their shoes and really be winsome, seek to be winsome, and have a chance to at some point show and tell the good news I have in Jesus. But oftentimes, when we wage a culture war, it squashes that argument right on. Think about, don't raise your hand, but in your mind raise your hand. How many women who are hurting, how many women who find themselves in the place of an unwanted teen pregnancy, which was my mom too, 19 years old, didn't marry my father, she was into all sorts of stuff anyways, it's another story. How many women do you think would feel comfortable coming up and sharing their story and seeking wisdom, counsel, and advice from Debbie? It's kind of like a no-starter, right? Why? Because they know where she's at. She's not going to care about the pain that they're in. She's not going to care about where they've been from. She's not going to explain, care about what they've experienced per se. See, when we wage a culture war, uh, we, we, we lose the opportunity to have a seat at the table of people's hearts and people's lives and influence them for Jesus. We lose that opportunity when we wage the culture where we can't dialogue because it's done before it starts. It's done before it starts. Now, conversely, conversely, we can't just do what that other image said and just assimilate into culture where we don't think of culture through the lens of Jesus, who he is, what he did, his kingdom, and his values. We can't do that either, right? Because then we look no different from the world. And if we look no different from the world, Jesus really doesn't make that big of a difference in our life. And we don't really have anything to offer. But we can be a third way people. A third way people where like we do as a family, we partner with the organization Seed of Hope that realizes the myriad of complexities and layers surrounding teen pregnancy and, and what they find themselves in and are probably very anxious what people think about them, how they'll make it financially, anxious if they're doing this without dad in their lives, scared of the many unknowns. When you have an organization that shows the love and the grace of Jesus and reminds women that they have options, you have a third way people in a compelling picture of what it looks like to follow Jesus. When you have a church family like this, that's one of the biggest proponents, and not only proponents, but actually fosterers of children in this area, that's what I call a compelling Christian witness, right? That our word is not just tongues, is not just that love, you know, showing love in word or in tongue, but in action and in truth. We're living out how we've received the grace of God and then showing that to others. But here's what I wonder if we do, and I'm putting myself in this too. When we forget that our hope is found in Jesus, and He's the thing that we have that's compelling about us, individually and as a family, 
we resort to fighting culture wars because I think we want to either get back to the way it used to be, we want to preserve what we feel like is fleeting, right? Or, and we forget that Jesus is in control of all of this. Jesus is in control of our past. He's in control of our present. He's in control of our future. And, and we can trust Him in this. What am I saying? Am I saying don't be politically active? I'm not saying that. I'm questioning the how in all of this. I'm questioning how do we lead? And does the way we lead shut down dialogue, shut down potential friendship, where we don't even have a voice at the seat of the table of someone's heart to show and tell the goodness of Jesus? I want to close our time by talking about just a couple characteristics maybe of third-way people. And this isn't like necessarily in the text. This is application. I think third-way people ask questions rather than make assumptions and rush to judgment. I think third-way people ask questions rather than make assumptions and rush to judgment. But in order to do this, we need to focus on not our need to be right, because I think that's what I do sometimes. It's probably what you do sometimes, want to be right. Not our need to be right, but the fact that we are right only through Jesus. He's our righteousness. He's the one makes us right. So whether it be with our spouses, with our kids, with co-workers, with the world at large and spiritual family, we don't need to be right because we're right in Jesus. That's a very freeing thought. I think we need to humbly give much grace because we realize that much grace has been given to us in Jesus. But in order to do this again, we, we need to realize what grace is. It's not owed to us. There's nothing Ryan or you can do to earn God's favor. It's given to us through a faith in Jesus, not because we deserve it, but because God is so gracious and loving that he offers it to us. I think a third way people focus on Jesus, and we make him more important than any political party, more than any cause, more than any hot-button issue. And then we try and understand. We try and listen. And we try and place ourselves in the shoes of someone else. i tell you one more story. So before this, like I said, we lived in inner city Milwaukee, and um, I had neighbors, we'll call them, I don't know, I don't, they'll remain nameless, we're not going to use the real name, but we had some neighbors who were great people, great people, they were so kind to our family, and um, the, the wife in this couple worked at Arby's, I think she made something like six something an hour, right, it wasn't a lot. The husband was on SSI because he had polio, and he couldn't walk right. So anyways, I remember one time they came home and they said, yeah, we're going to lose Badger Care. I think it was Badger Care at that point, state subsidized, you know, health insurance. And, and I was like, well, why are you going to lose it? Like, well, you know, I, I need more money. So I'm working like X amount, 30 hours at Arby's instead of 25. But that puts me just above the threshold, whatever. And so she was going to lose her health insurance. Now, here's the caveat. Here's where it gets sticky and messy and I don't know how to solve it. I'm pretty sure on the side, to make ends meet, he sold some drugs. Nicest family. Very kind to us. Protector of the neighborhood. Protector of us, in a sense. What do you do with that? What do I do with that? I don't know. I sought to love them. Right? But what do I do with that? To be a compelling example of Jesus. I think we need to try and put ourselves in someone else's shoes. And then in that, I don't know, the Spirit's going to have to lead us, but we point them back to Him. I think the last characteristic of a third way people, we can agree to disagree and still be for someone. 
not be against them. We can give up the right to be right. I'm sure there's other applications. That's all I have this morning. But family, gone are the days where by and large, I think people think of Christian, that term, in a positive terms, or as the people you go to for advice or wisdom or the deep answers of life. And I think we have an amazing family, just so you know that. I think we have an amazingly compelling family, whether it be Kewaskum, Jackson, West Bend, all of us together. But if we're honest, still anything in an amazing, healthy family, sometimes the reason we've lost the seat at the table of people's hearts and the opportunity to show and tell them about Jesus is because we've had an us-versus-them attitude. And I wonder if sometimes we've fought battles never intended to be fought, rather than point people back to Jesus. In order to do this, we're going to have to be patient. We're going to have to persistently demonstrate a compelling communal life that mirrors the life of our compelling leader, Jesus Christ. As the music team, music worship team comes back up, will you pray with me? Father, I pray that you would use something from your scriptures and from what was said to allow us to process. Where do we find ourselves? What are we more prone to? Are we more prone to kind of waging a culture war? Are are we more prone to just assimilating either passively or actively into culture and not questioning how the good news of Jesus changes us in the midst of culture? Or, Father, are we seeking to be a third-way people, individually and communally, who give much grace, who humbly listen and seek to put ourselves in the shoes of others, who seek to earn the right to tell the message of Jesus through how we live out the way of Jesus. Father, I pray we'd wrestle. I pray your spirit would encourage us. I pray your spirit would challenge us. And Father, thank you that you are the most compelling leader in the person of Jesus that we have as an example. May you continue to change us so that we can show him to a watching world. God's people said, 